tuned in to Word of Mom Radio here on the Word of Mom Media Network. Welcome to the Village Vision Podcast, where community collaboration and care converge. I'm Dr. Crystal Morrison, and I'm honored to be your host on this incredible journey. As a firm believer in the power of a united village, I'm thrilled to bring you inspired stories, research, and projects that break down barriers in child and family care. Through heartfelt conversations with experts, advocates, and those with lived experiences, we'll showcase the transformative impact of collective support. So join me on the Village Vision podcast as we explore the remarkable collaborations that lead to better outcomes, foster a sense of community, and inspire action to improve care for ourselves and everyone around us. On today's episode, I'm here with Bobby Morgan. Bobby is an educator, speaker, and founder of Liberation Lab. Bobby is passionate about education and driven by a mission to build disruptive educators. He works tirelessly to equip professionals with the skills and mindset needed to excel in their roles. Specializing in serving educators at all levels, Bobby's expertise shines when working with those serving in urban and culturally diverse communities. And I personally love all forms of disruption, so I'm very excited to talk with Bobby. But welcome, Bobby. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. You know, as I've said, I'm all about disrupting the status quo. I've really been looking forward to our conversation today for a variety of reasons, because, you know, my children are part of the urban education system. I have a diverse family, but I'm really excited to share your work with our listeners in a big way. But before we talk about Liberation Lab, I really want to start with your why, the why, of course, and I want you to share with the listeners the why behind your work, and, and some of your personal stories. So can you share that with us? Absolutely. As I think about this question, one of the, I'm going to think about it from a snapshot point of view, if you will. The first thing that comes to mind is my sixth grade year of education. In my sixth grade year, I was one of two Black students in the gifted and talented, they called it honors program. Mm-hmm. In that class, we were supposed to be the, the creme de la creme of what was happening in our school. But honestly, that year, I struggled a lot. There was a lot going on at home. My mom was going through a divorce. And I was really angry about the things I couldn't control. Sure. And it trickled into the classroom. It affected my grades. I couldn't focus. I couldn't understand certain things. I, I struggled. And I got B's and C's, which was hard to come home with on a report card, for sure. And I struggled for most of the year. And I got to fourth marking period and I buckled down and with all the fight that I could muster, got A's and B's. And I looked at that report card because this was back when teachers could write on the report card. Right. And the teacher wrote on my fourth marking period comment section, this student does not belong in the gifted and talented program. He is recommended for general education. I remember the handwriting. I remember what she wrote. But most of all, I remember how I felt. Those words haunted me for the majority of my remaining academic career, probably up until grad school. I never felt like I was good enough. And I worked really hard from a place of just vulnerability and and insecurity to try to prove that I belong through trying to subscribe to perfectionism and all the things. All the things. All the things, yeah. And the reason I bring that up is because that is – 
emblematic of a larger story, I guess I would say, because in the history of my life, the reason that I know that I was born on February 13th is because my biological mother left me on a doorstep. I bounced around the foster care system until my adopted mother, when I say mom, that's what I mean, uh, got me. And I say all that to say I struggled with a sense of belonging, whether that be in my personal life and even in school. I knew what it's like to be an outsider. I knew what it's like to not be necessarily welcomed in. And I struggled with people pleasing because all I wanted to do was belong and fit. Now you think about that and you think about our schools and how they're structured and all the hoops that our children have to go through to be able to feel that sense of belonging. They have to perform regardless of what it is that might be going through. And if they're going through something, they have to put that on the back burner in order to get the right grade because the grades mean everything. It is a symbol of your success in our world, not how well we're teaching. We don't grade ourselves. We grade Mm -hmm. you. And so for me, my why is that. I know what it's like to not belong, and I want to create spaces for our babies to belong. that They don't have to perform for They don't have to jump through hoops for They can just exist and breathe and be. I want to create a space like that because I didn't have it. Right. And I'm sure for you, when you saw that word belong on your report card because of early trauma and other things that you have gone through, you know, being part of the foster system and a number of different things that there was so much more that that word carried than just that word written by a teacher on a report card, which is horrible in and of itself. I mean, it obviously impacted you, but it had so so much more weight even for you. We're going to take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors, and we will be right back on the Village Vision podcast here on Word of Mom Radio. She is brave. She is bold. She is you. And we want to tell your story. Are you ready to share your journey with us on Word of Mom Radio? Go to wordofmomradio.com and register as a guest. We want to tell your story because when you win, we all win. Unsilenced Voices has been working diligently in Ghana, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, and the USA to combat domestic violence, sexual abuse, and human trafficking. We currently have over 50 young girls on a wait list in Sierra Leone to go through a vocational training program to get them off the streets and out of harm's way. We have gifted over $33,000 to U.S. survivors and are looking for volunteers and donors to help us continue our cause. Please visit us at www.unsilencedvoices.org. Again, unsilencedvoices.org for more information. Are you experiencing insomnia, brain fog, hot flashes, mood swings, and more? These are many of the symptoms women experience on a daily basis affecting the health of their brain and increasing the risk for dementias like Alzheimer's disease down the road. A healthy lifestyle can make a big difference for the health of the brain, but Brain Love Health took it further and created an innovative nutritional supplement, especially for women, to support us through this transitional time while also promoting better sleep and long-term brain health. Don't wait any longer to help your brain age well. Why let it deteriorate? The health of your brain is in your hands. To begin protecting it today, visit brainlovehealth.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-L-O-V-E-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. 
Don't let the name fool you. StadiumBags.com is not just for sports fans. Our clear bags make it easier for you to get into any venue that you go to. And in today's world where we are so concerned about germs, the materials that our bags are made with are strong enough to stand up to the solvents that you can use to clean your bag so you know you come home safely. So check out StadiumBags.com. You'll see why we are the clear choice safety it's in the bag and we're back on the village vision podcast here on word of mom radio with our guest bobby morgan we talked about the why behind his work now i want to transition and talk about your work today with the liberation lab because you founded the liberation lab pretty recently but you've been doing this work for a long time this is not a new thing right yeah yeah Absolutely. And so I'm going to go back to my first years in teaching to kind of tell mm-hmm. the story. Yes. I started in Camden, New Jersey, was voted the most dangerous city to live in, poorest in our country at the time in which I started. And I walked into the classroom and you think, you know, you're so excited to teach and you're so excited to get into the classroom. But then when you are literally in front of kids, you realize how much your teacher prep program didn't really prep you for the things. I had to make learning actionable and real and connect with young minds. And while I was great on the rapport side and connection, I didn't know how to teach really. And I had to figure that out. I was handed a book. I won't say it because I'm not on my podcast and I don't want to get you in trouble, but (laughs) I was handed a book that I have a name for, and it gave me very high control methods of teaching. Right. I read every word, bought in, and that's what I was doing for at least the three, four years of my career, first four four years of my career. Kind of a command and control approach. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So now, so imagine, right, you're in my classroom and... I'm going to demand that you're in your seat within 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. I'm going to demand that I can see your hands mm-hmm. and they're holding a pencil and you must get to work within those 30 seconds. I'm going to demand your attention at every drop of a hat. You can't dream. You can't fade away. You can't daydream. None of that. You have to, you have to give me everything, right? I bring that up because I bought into a system that I'm now working to fight against. And that is, Our school systems are, if they're set to the default mode, they would dehumanize students, teachers, and families alike. That's right. And what we need to do, to your point, is to commit to a life, to an act, to a lifestyle of disruption. And so that's the work that I'm involved in now with Liberation Lab is is building, building disruptive educators through our pillars of culturally responsive teaching, social justice education, and restorative practices. And I've been able to see the growth and development of teachers who feel more empowered to take the risk to dive in and to do the things that are necessary to restore healing and humanity to our schools. And I'm proud of the work that we've been done so far and proud of the work we will continue to do. Now, for those listening who may not be educators, terms like restorative practices and culturally competent development even trauma-informed teaching and care, which is something that's wrapped in all of that. These are not words that our listeners may hear on a regular basis. So can you talk a little bit more about what that means, what those words mean? Absolutely. And I'll use myself as the example. 
when I was in sixth grade that year, I told you about all the things that was going on in my life prevented me from performing at all. All my teacher knew was that I was not getting the grades that she thought was acceptable. But you know, she never asked me why. What's going on? There was never an approach that saw me as a person first in my full humanity that engaged me at a heart level. And instead of fixating and focusing on what students can produce, I'm suggesting that we recognize that we focus on who they are. And from that place, we can begin to educate better. So when I say culturally responsive teaching, I'm asking educators to recognize that we all have a culture. That's we right. all come from a heritage, norms, values, traditions, beliefs. That's we right. all hold them. And more times than not in education, we will punish kids we fail to understand because we won't gather and understand and assume a learner's stance in the culture of our students. With that comes an embedded belief that there is strength and wealth in that culture that I can learn and grow from. Right. Simply humble myself enough to learn it, right? So there's cultural competence that is knowing and understanding, but there's also a culture of humility that says, I don't know it all and I need to learn, right? right? When I say social justice education, particularly in this political climate, that might set some people off. But what I'm suggesting is that just perhaps learning shouldn't stop when I leave the classroom. Of course. Perhaps learning should continue and affect the communities that we are entrusted to serve. So, for example, in my school that I teach in, there's been a record, if you will, of underperformance as, as rated by standardized test scores and things like that. But what if I involve students in that process and said, why do you think that is? What's happening in our communities? What's happening in our schools? What needs to change? And now we're writing persuasive writing. You know, we're getting involved in that. We're, we're, we're understanding history. We're using math to actually tell a story, right? Where all these things mean something because now it's connected to the real world in which they live. That's all social justice is. It's connecting to the heart of the matter so it makes it real and relevant for our students. And then lastly, when I talk about restorative practices, I'm suggesting that we stop the failed experiment we have with punitive discipline. Absolutely. I'm old enough to have a Nintendo, an Atari. <laughs> And I remember playing Nintendo, Super Mario Brothers, and like, and I, I, I'll, I'll even use Mike Tyson's Punch Out because that was like my favorite game. Oh, I remember that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in old school Nintendo, you used to have to blow the cartridge to make sure all the dust was out, and then you put it in and you started it up, right? Yeah. And kids today don't know this, but there was never a save button. So oh, right. you had to beat the whole game in one sitting. You could pause it, but it was risky because if you paused it, the game might overheat. I got to the last level when I'm fighting Mike Tyson and Mike Tyson used to flash and then hit you. And it was one punch and you were done. And I got to Mike Tyson. I dodged the first punch and then I got the tail of death, which was the lines across the screen that said your system had overheated. And what I had to do in that moment, there was no other option. is I had to hit the reset button. Yeah. You hit the reset button, you start at the beginning as though you did nothing at all. None of the progress mattered. I'm suggesting that our punitive systems of discipline are like hitting the reset button in a child's life. where There's no progress. There's no save progress. We just ask them to come back like it never happened. Yeah. What if we actually did what we 
doing everything else. When a child doesn't know math, we teach them them with their understandings and their gaps. When a child doesn't understand reading, we help them to read and make connections with things. But when a child doesn't, quote unquote, behave, we punish. How does that make sense? Yes. Now, when I say restorative practices, if you are in education, that might trigger you because at the end of the day, you think that means there are no consequences. I'm suggesting that the consequences do exist, but they exist with the child. We make the child a partner in the progress right. so they can understand exactly what went wrong and how to make it right. And I want to end with this. Imagine what that would do with our world when we have people who won't take accountability in high places. Oh, exactly. exactly. When we can have young people who actually take accountability, know how to remedy a situation and assess harm and do what's right to make those connections with people. And they understand that the community comes before them. So that's what I was suggesting. Yeah. And, you know, I want to come back really briefly to this punitive punishment, because you were saying, you know, we expect our students to come back and, and start over, drop back in, just like nothing happened. And that's not true. That's not possible. They actually, that punitive punishment actually forces them further behind and not just educationally, as you well know, but isolates them, disconnects them from that community, that sense of belonging, which is where we started this conversation. And that punitive damage just absolutely reinforces the cycle of not belonging and trauma and being isolated and, and not really having a safety net of protection around them. And so, you know, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. And I also agree that I think that term is sometimes taken as no consequences, and it's not. But I think the thing that educators struggle with and and community in general struggle with is they come to the realization that it can't be one size fits all anymore, that you have to take that child and the context and the environment that they live and exist in at home and community, and you have to take all of those things into account. And that's hard. It's not one size fits all, but it's actually how we make progress, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I think to your point, the aspect of, they'll say, educators, when I talk to them, when I'm doing consultations, trainings, and the like, mm-hmm. they'll say, we don't have time. And I'm like, but you had time to assess the situation. You had time to talk to the student in front of the class and perhaps embarrass the student. Yeah. You had time to send the kid to the hallway to talk to them. You had time to talk to them in the hallway. You had time to write the discipline referral. You had time to send them to the principal's office. You had time for them to come back from the principal's office. And if that punishment wasn't severe enough for you, you had time to send them back. And I'm suggesting, why don't we invest the time to the root cause of said behavior so we can get off of this treadmill where we're running hard and not getting anywhere? I agree. And and I actually think by doing that, you unlock time in the day, right? It it might take more time up front, but you, in the end, unlock time to actually be able to educate, right? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about that we talked about a while back, and I asked you the question, what does your ideal classroom look like? And what you told me has stuck with me in such a profound way I'll say it in my words and and you can correct it. But what you said was that classroom where kids can think about what they want to do and who they want to be as if isms didn't exist. Yeah. 
it just really stayed with me as if yeah. all of the isms that we know exist, that we can't ignore, we can't pretend like they're not there. But that's that's your ideal classroom. You want to tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely, Dr. Morrison. I think I frame liberation in the form of a question. Yeah. That is, who would you be if it weren't for misogyny, if it weren't for racism, if it weren't for these systems of oppression, if it weren't for power differential and the like? So when I frame isms, that's what I'm talking about. All the exactly. things that put one versus the other, compare and contrast, all the things that divide us, right? What would you be if it wasn't for that? Because if we don't inspire kids with a dream, then we're asking them to perform without fuel, without anything to move them forward, right? Mm -hmm. we, we want education to be intrinsically motivated, but we don't give students the opportunity to dream big and then give them the tools necessary to accomplish that dream, right? And so when I envision the classroom, when I envision what schooling could look like if we actually freedom dream, it would be without the construct of, again, these power differentials, white supremacy, culture, and the like. What I'm saying is, what if we just honored our humanity? What if we understood that actually there's more that connects us than divides us? And if we taught students in that way, then I'm actually empowering, for example, our young ladies to encounter a world that isn't made for them because of misogyny and patriarchy. What would it look like for me as a teacher to stand in front of them and to say, this is some of the things that I bought into that I'm continuing to unlearn? Yeah. What does that mean for you? How, do you, how are you going to, to show up in our world? And, and how can I best support you in your learning now so that when you encounter it, you're not shrinking back in the interview when they want to offer you that 70 cents to a dollar. You will yeah. know how to navigate it, right? Precisely. Precisely. Um, and, and so that makes, again, it makes it relevant and real because we, we tend to act in schools like life stops when you enter the classroom. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. But what if we actually acted like those things were connected and trained and taught in such a way that inspired change, inspired right. change first within so that change can happen without? Yeah. And, and I know at Liberation Lab, and we'll, you know, we'll talk about this in, in a bit, but you are engaged in speaking and workshops. And, you know, one of the things that I wanted to be sure to point out to our audience is that while you have thus far focused on speaking and working with educators, this message transcends so far beyond schools. You know, in order to really make this work and in order to really disrupt the status quo around education, we really have to be disrupting our communities and, you know, organizations that are involved in schools tangentially in some way or, you know, there's so many opportunities for this message to be shared with other professionals, with nonprofit leaders, with community leaders, and I could go on and on. But I do really want to make that point to listeners. When you check out Bobby's website, Liberation Lab, don't think of it only in the context of he's going to talk to teachers. <laughs> to your point, I'm doing work right now with a business in Massachusetts who is seeking to redefine how their policies are affecting or preventing black and brown professionals from entering. Right. Yeah. One of the things that we have to ask ourselves is if our businesses, if our places of work, if our corporations, whatever it is, if they are monolithic, right, I can't just concentrate on, to use an agricultural analogy, I can't just concentrate on the type of plants 
that are growing, I have to concentrate on the soil. And is the soil suitable for the plants that I want to see? Right? right. And in that same way, are we constructing our businesses, our places of work, our organizations in such a way that welcomes and fuels people who don't look like us? Mm-hmm. So to wrap up today, I want you to leave our listeners with a key message. If they were to hear nothing else in this conversation, what's that key message that you want to leave our listeners with? And also, how can you and Liberation Lab support educators, professionals, and communities? Yes. Uh, uh, well, first, I wanted to say thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to share. I would say for those who are listening, two things. One is community, and the second is disruption. Mm-hmm. When I say community, I simply mean this. When we make the problems of others our own, when I personalize the problem of someone else, that means I need to get to work dismantling said problem. Right. Mm-hmm. I know that misogyny isn't affecting me, but if I personalize it, then I do the work necessary to disrupt on behalf of someone else. And that's truly what community is. So I want to call our all your listeners. One, recognize your community. Right. Who are those around you? Who are those who are being affected in different ways? And just because it's not happening to you doesn't mean it's not true. Right? Absolutely. And then once you do that, you can get to the work of disruption. When I say disruption, here's what I mean. You get to the root of problems. You get to the root of first your understanding and how you show up, and then you begin to untangle that web so that it doesn't affect the person that you're viewing, right? Mm-hmm. Our problems are fueled better when we have that human approach to them. And so how do I serve? I would invite anybody, please, you know, check out the work that I do on Liberation Lab. All my links are there on my site. I engage in speaking and workshops, consulting virtually and in person. I've been fortunate enough to be able to travel a lot and to serve in different locales because this work is needed everywhere. And so as you engage my site, please know that I believe that I can support to build the disruption where you are. That's wonderful. We're going to wrap up today and I really will have Bobby's information in the show notes. Encourage you to check out Liberation Lab connect with Bobby and all of his social media channels. But thank you again, Bobby, for joining us today on the Village Vision podcast. I'm so grateful that you shared your story, your personal story that often can be difficult, and also your experience and the work that you're doing today with our listeners. It is an honor to be able to do so, and I hope someone's encouraged by it. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Village Vision Podcast. I hope you found inspiration and valuable insights from our conversation today. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, leave a review, and share all the things. Thank you for being a part of the Village Vision Podcast here on Word of Mom Radio. Take care, and let's keep shining a light on the power of community, collaboration, and care. She is sure, she is sure, she is sure.